the interior was beginning its transformation into desert, now called the Outback, and grasslands and savannas were beginning to replace inland forests. But along the forested shorelines and inland on the many surviving lakes like Lake Mungo were fish and shellfish for the taking. Early on, then, these new arrivals would have had little trouble adjusting to their new land. New species of edible plant food and new prey animals. Australia, after all, was the home of a large array of marsupials, from large kangaroos to mouse-sized creatures, needed to be studied and made use of. But in general, the new environment was familiar. Only later would some of them have to become desert people. When Europeans grew curious about the origins of the Aborigines, these first Australians were not held in high regard. Even early 20th century anatomists looking at the few ancient skulls they had collected concluded that these early inhabitants were closer to Homo erectus than to modern humans. There were clearly Stone Age people who simply had not progressed beyond the most primitive of life ways. As the 20th century moved along, however, Ethnographers began to elucidate the complexities, subtleties, and high degree of adaptedness that existed among exotic societies globally. Even so, in the case of the Aborigines, it would be a long time before ethnographers would actually take note of what Aboriginal women were up to. Back in 1913, the great ethnographic pioneer Bronislaw Malinowski noted that among the Aborigines, quote, the relation of a husband to a wife is in its economic aspect that of a master to its slave, unquote. By the 1930s, other ethnographers were asserting that the man's role in performing the complex and nearly constant ritual life of the Aborigines was in stark contrast to the woman's simple role. Said another ethnographer as late as 1979, men controlled both women and the natural world by means of religion and ritual thus depriving the women of political and economic autonomy all their lives. This was all simply nonsense. Phyllis Caberry had already in the 1930s made the first comprehensive study of Aboriginal women and had made it clear that there was nothing compulsory about all the work they did chiefly gathering plant food and grinding much of it into flour from which grass seed cakes could be made, except that such work was necessary for a continued existence. Women, Cabaret pointed out, were taught by women, 
worked in the company of other women, decided when to forage and where, and if their men got out of line, brought them to their senses by moving out, meaning that the men would have nothing much to eat except the occasional booty from the hunt. Men, in other words, were dependent on women for food and not the other way around. Continuing studies have refined the overall picture, with local and regional differences arising and more complex relationships being perceived. It seemed that the women's grass seed cakes sustained the men during their rituals, but men provided nothing to the women during theirs. In essence, it began to appear that there was a kind of power balance rather than outright dominance by one gender over the other. For example, male rituals gave the men power, but to be wholly powerful, they would need to have the women go to their places to live, thus demonstrating patrilineality. patrilineality. But the very grass seed cakes that sustained the men came from flour that the women made by grinding seeds in, on stones that were few and too heavy for them to transport. So the stones remained the property of the female line, and the men lived in their wives' locales, thus demonstrating matrilineality, a check on male power. To some degree, such analysis of gendered power can often be Roshkash tests of one's own perspective and training on such matters. But one thing appears to be certain about the Australian Aborigines. Their land is called the Flower Frontier. Aboriginal groups were able to settle the interior of the continent where the world was utterly different from what they had experienced on the coasts, thanks to a very great degree to the women and their grass seed cakes. For, as noted, women could and did manage their own survival, whereas men managed only a part of it. Yet other studies showed a skewed distribution of food in some Aboriginal societies each woman foraged for herself and her children, eating whatever she found as they moved around the landscape, and she provided for her husband and his male relatives during ritual times. By contrast, when a man succeeded in bagging some meat or fish, he was obliged to provide it to his male relatives and his children, but not his wife. Coming in last on the food chain, women rarely had enough meat to sustain them and presumably did their own hunting or fishing. In any event, there were two diets, one woman's and other men's. Fishing is, in fact, not that easy to categorize. Going out into the water with a spear to catch a scale fish a task reserved for Aboriginal men, is hard to distinguish from hunting. 
But if the same man goes out with a poisonous plant product like the bark of certain trees and throws it in the lagoon, knocking out all the fish so they float to the surface, it is more like gathering. But among Aborigines, men do the poisoning as well. But women were noticed to fish as well, using shell hooks and string made of plant and material, other plant material. And also participating in, in net fishing. Fi finally, while there is nothing to stop men from gathering shellfish, that task was normally accomplished by Aboriginal women who, again, would, with their children, eat most of what they found where they found it, bringing some back for the other people whom they were obligated. Mm-hmm. 